Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast, a production of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. Today, we're going to have a conversation about a recent opinion from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Please note that these episodes may contain facts and circumstances surrounding criminal trials. Listener discretion is advised. All rise. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The Honorable United States Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces is now open and in session. God save the United States of America in this honorable court. Welcome to another episode of CAF Chat. This is Lieutenant Colonel David C. Graves, United States Marine Corps, and Captain Adam Costick, U.S. Army. We're here to talk about United States versus Pyron, Master at Arms, Second Class, United States Navy. This case was decided January 17th, 2023. Basically, this case is about admissions of a party opponent. Specifically, when is an accused testimony from a prior trial inadmissible at a subsequent trial or rehearing? Captain Costick, you have some of the facts of this case. Yes, sir. So at his first court-martial in 2019, Master at Arms Petty Officer 2nd Class Pyron was convicted, contrary to his pleas of Articles 80 and 120 Bravo. He was sentenced to 39 years of confinement, reduction to E1, and to be dishonorably discharged from the service. Sir, for our Army folk out there, can you tell us what a Master at Arms is as well as a Petty Officer 2nd Class? Well, Master at Arms is the law enforcement for the Navy, so much like your, your military police or MPs. Uh, being a second class, that means he's an E5 or a sergeant for both the Army and the Marine Corps. During his first court-martial uh, at the individual voir dire phase of trial, uh, Lieutenant Alpha said that uh, during trial he would think of his two young daughters um, specifically because he read it on the charge sheet. And when questioned about it, he, he admitted repeatedly that it would be hard not to think of them when the alleged victims came in to testify. And when he was pressed a little bit by counsel about what he meant by that, he said it would he would be thinking in not a good way, uh, quote, end quote. Neither the trial counsel nor the military judge uh, instructed Lieutenant Alpha that he had to disregard those feelings concerning his daughters when he was conducting deliberations or voting on a findings and sentence. In response, uh, the defense obviously challenged him in voir dire for implied bias. During that challenge, the trial counsel mistakenly represented to the military judge that Lieutenant Alpha had been rehabilitated when, in fact, he had not. Based on this representation, the military judge denied the challenge and the request that he be excused. Specifically, the trial judge did say that he considered the liberal grant mandate when ruling on that denial. And that implied bias, I mean, that is pretty strong here because the, the, the two uh, young girls in this case were six and eight years old. Uh, Lieutenant Alpha had an eight-year-old daughter and an eleven-year-old daughter himself. So very poignant. Like he, he naturally, as as a human would, would think about his daughter that was the same age as, as one of these girls. Yes, sir. The court, when they when they went through their analysis, really focused on the age of the children in connection with the age of his children and how it would be very difficult for him to separate mentally the facts of this case. During the merits, Pyron decided to take the stand as a witness to deny the charged offenses. He testified that he was coerced into telling the NCI agent that he had committed the crime, when in fact, in his defense, he argued that he never had committed it. He explained that NCIS's deceptive interrogation techniques caused him to question his memory and their repeated pushing, and to, to quote Pyron, their pushing and pushing and pushing caused him to doubt his own memory and convinced him that he had actually committed the crimes. 
So in Pyron 1, the Navy Marine Court of Criminal Appeal made a decision that the trial court failed to appropriately consider and apply the liberal grant mandate and overturn the findings of guilt. In particular, the court ruled that the record left clear that a disinterested member of the public would believe that Lieutenant Alpha would be thinking of his children when rendering a verdict. Uh, the military judge failed to appropriately conduct this analysis based in part on the mistaken representations of the trial counsel that he had been rehabilitated, thereby the military judge abuses discretion in not granting the challenge under the liberal grade standard. Got it. So, you know, at the trial level, he was ultimately convicted. You're saying the Navy Marine Corps Court of Appeals, they looked at it again. They said, okay, no re rehabilitation was done. So, and when looking at this record, is left to believe that he was never told to disregard thinking about his children, and he, he was never rehabilitated. And so, you had somebody that really shouldn't be on that panel convicting him. Yes, sir. I believe he was the the sixth member of the panel, there were 14 initial members on the voir dire. And so striking this member, had the judge done it, wouldn't have caused any issues with their uh, selection process or available members to sit. They could have moved along smartly. Yes. And so with the retrial, after the Navy court overturned the case, the accused filed a motion in Lemonade to exclude the prior testimony. He alleged that it was induced by illegal government action. And the military judge agreed with the defense Specifically, the military judge found that the trial counsel's misleading statements during challenges for cause was a serious mistake, and I'll emphasize serious mistake, and the judge excluded the testimony. Consequently, the government filed an immediate Article 62 appeal. Article 62 appeal, that's an interlocutory appeal, right? That's right, sir. The normal standard that the United States, you know, the government, cannot appeal in a criminal case without express congressional authorization. In the military, Congress provided that authority for a government appeal in Article 62. Article 62 states in relevant part that in any trial by general or special court martial or in a pretrial proceeding under Article 30 Alpha, the United States may appeal an order or a ruling of the military judge which, one, excludes evidence that is substantial proof of a fact material in the proceeding, or two, terminates the proceedings with respect to a charge or specification, and this provision shall be liberally construed to affect its purposes. In short, we're in bullet point one here, excluding evidence that is substantial proof of a fact material in the uh, proceeding. The accused in court testimony uh, as a witness is evidence that's material, substantial to this proceeding. All kinds of admissions there. Anything the accused says you know, is potentially self-incriminating. Absolutely, sir. Very well. So what happened next? Government appeals under Article 62, and the Navy court looks at it, and they rely on United States versus Harrison. It's a Supreme Court case. And in Harrison, the Supreme Court promulgated the general evidentiary rule that a criminal defendant's testimony from a prior trial is admissible in evidence against them at a later proceeding. However, as we all know, there's always exceptions. And, and in this case, the testimony is induced by the prosecution, introducing a confession or admission that was obtained through illegal government action. The testimony will be also considered fruit of the poisonous tree and thereby excluded. So general rule, you can bring the evidence in, the prior testimony, exception, if there exists some illegal government action, fruit of the poisonous tree, hard stop, not admissible. And so this illegal action that would that overborne the voluntariness of that self-incrimination at trial, right? Yes, sir. The, the language the Supreme Court uses is quite interesting here. 
the evidentiary product of the poison tree, you know, the classical quote there, it really grows out of the Fourth Amendment case law, this illegal government action test when it comes to prior statements of the accused. And as a quick refresher, evidence that's derived from an illegal search, an illegal arrest, or an illegal interrogation is inadmissible. That's where this Harrison test developed and grew out of was this Fourth Amendment case law. And this makes sense, right, sir? If the tree is tainted, so is the fruit. If the confession, the uh, interrogation, the procedural process behind uh, law enforcement or the government obtaining a confession or admission in any case is tainted in some way, it only makes sense that the trial court prevents the government from using that illegally obtained evidence against the accused. And, and both the Supreme Court and CAF talk about you know, wanting to make sure the investigative actions are sound, are legal. Uh, and, and that's really kind of the rub, the friction here between the, the trial level and the appellate level, both the neighboring court, court of appeals and CAF, is, is the distinction of illegal versus mistake. Yes, sir. And, and the question you know, from Harrison really turned on, it's not whether the accused gets up and testifies. It, it really dives into the why. And, and you drew that distinction out there with the mistake representations of the trial counsel. It, it really comes down to this inducement. If an accused gets on this witness stand and he, he testifies in order to overcome the impact of a prior confession or admission that was illegally obtained by law enforcement or the government, then his testimony is tainted by the same illegality that, that rendered his confession itself inadmissible. And this inducement logic, you know, it, it's been tested over and it's, it's pretty sound. It's, it's because the voluntariness of that prior statements in question, it extends to the voluntariness of the decision to testify. One is going to presume that you would have to take the stand to testify to rebut the illegal confession or admission that was obtained. And we've already tried, kind of jumped into the analysis here, uh, but just to be very clear, the CAF granted two issues. First one, not really addressed, but the second one, this is what we're really talking about here, is whether the military judge correctly concluded appellant's testimony from his first court-martial was inadmissible, where the government failed to prove appellant testified for reasons unrelated to his biased member panel. If we, we look back at what the court talks about with the military judge, the military judge really kind of, kind of brings an equity argument. Uh, they said it was a mistake. But it was a negligent mistake, and the government shouldn't benefit from it. Essentially, what the trial judge said. Yes, sir. And the the appellate courts will review a military judge's ruling with regards to the exclusion of evidence for an abuse of discretion. So, quick refresher on abuse of discretion: if the findings of fact are clearly erroneous, or the holding, uh, the result, the ruling, if you will, is based on an erroneous conclusion of law, and particularly for Pyron. The statements that he had made to NCIS and the subsequent trial testimony, it, the, the court found that they were not illegally obtained. The trial court seemed to agree with this. Several of his admissions were made after he knowingly and intelligently waived his right against self-incrimination to law enforcement. The reason he took the stand was specifically to clarify, rebut, uh, polish up, if you will, his statements he made to law enforcement. He didn't take the stand to testify to try to minimize or mitigate the panel member's bias for which he claimed on appeal was the reason he took the stand. What do you make of that argument, sir? Well, defense was making an equity argument. Uh, they were trying to expand Harrison uh, to a due process, due process violation of Pyron's right to an impartial panel. 
uh, with the equity argument that I'm talking about, they're trying to say, why should the government get the benefit of the accused testimony at the first trial when the reason the trial was thrown out was the government's fault? Harris and other cases following it talk about how not allowing the prior testimony in a subsequent trial does not put the government in a worse position for proving their case than if they had not taken an illegal action. Essentially, the government was at fault, even if not an illegal act, but they shouldn't get a benefit from their own mistakes. And not allowing the prior testimony doesn't put the government in a worse position than they were at the beginning of the first trial. So it makes some sense. It, 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 it's, a, it's a nice logical argument. Uh, but the Supreme Court and CAF have focused on investigatory acts when they're defining illegal action by the government. Sure, and, and CAF, sir, really dove into what illegal action meant. And clearly, a mistaken representation by a trial counsel is not an illegal act within that definition. And CAF really held that the military judge abused their discretion in this case because it appeared that they were, quote, punishing uh, the trial counsel for this mistaken representation. The trial counsel didn't lie to the court. He didn't induce law enforcement to take some type of illegal action in the procedural process of the case. And therefore, it just doesn't fit within Harrison. It's not an illegal act. And ultimately, Pyron's testimony is going to come in against him whenever the court martial happens. Agreed. So they affirmed Navy Marine Corps Court of Appeals decision, which which was to overturn the ruling at the trial level. And, and so Pyron's testimony will be allowed. Yes, sir. There's a, there's a little line where they, they quote the government's standard of what the Harrison test is. And specifically, uh, the first prong talks about a legal action of the government. But in the opinion, they also mention ineffective assistance of counsel. You know, researching for uh, this podcast, that line in the opinion, it really appears to be a Navy-specific rule. The other services haven't adopted ineffective assistance of counsel as a another avenue to challenge prior testimony, but the Navy has, and CAF seems to have implicitly affirmed it. And so before I ask you a question, I'll just talk about United States versus Murray. In that case, the Navy reviewed whether or not the accused prior testimony could be admitted at his retrial on the grounds that it had been given while his first counsel was ineffective. The... The Navy found that this decision was grounded in ineffectiveness because the testimony was a necessary predicate for the foundation that the defense counsel wanted to lay for an expert witness to talk about an, an issue that was just not relevant to that trial. And so that's where the ineffectiveness grew out of that trial strategy. And, and the court reasoned that really creating kind of like a direct effects test regarding IAC and prior testimony, they reasoned that if you're denied your Sixth Amendment right to counsel, specifically effective counsel, then there's this taint on the original trial that will be brought forth to the new trial. And so because you've been induced to testify by your ineffective counsel, it also cannot be admitted against you at your subsequent retrial. Now, I bring this up because CAF implicitly threw this line in here about the government's recitation of the standard, but didn't explicitly say ineffective assistance of counsel is also another avenue of which one can attack prior statements of the accused. They did not explicitly say this is the standard, but they implicitly adopted it because they said the government argued the correct standard and they just mentioned it. Uh, and, and so you have to think it's good law going forward. Um, I mean, going back to it with Murray, they talked about how they find the appellate did not voluntarily testify 
at his first trial and thus did not effectively waive his right to self against self-incrimination. Pardon me. They said the testimony was a direct result of the denial of the appellate's Sixth Amendment right to effective assistance of counsel. And so while the Navy Marine Corps Court of Appeals expanded Harrison with Murray, it now seems that CAF has implicitly adopted that standard. I think we should probably sum up the practice tips for the people out there in the field and the fleet and, and how they can use pirate going forward. Absolutely, sir. I, I think the big key takeaway here, and there's several, but the biggest one is if you're a trial counsel, protect your record. This never should have gotten to a Pyron 2, meaning the first Pyron decision should never have come out. If if the defense is challenging on implied bias in a case like this, where it's pretty evident that the panel member is going to have something in their mind that's going to affect them, and it's related to the facts of the case, you should probably just let them go. In this case, right, there were extra panel members there that could have been substituted in. They were readily available. It wouldn't have delayed trial in any serious length of time, right? We're not talking months here. We're talking maybe at most a few hours. When you fight these challenges tooth and nail, you're injecting this possible air into the record and you're giving appellate counsel an opportunity to attack the court martial, especially in cases where you have minor victims. You you don't want to re-traumatize them by making them have to come back years later and testify again. Just don't inject air by fighting it. Make a tactical decision as the government to just let it go and bring in a new panel member. I mean, that can be tough. Uh, you know, so many of us litigators were Type A personalities. We want to win everything. But but we need to know that you know sometimes you just need to concede a point and win the war. You don't have to win every battle. The question that sometimes I raise in some of my evidence classes is, do we want to be doing this again in 18 months? And here, as you said, plenty of members there. Move on. What's another point you saw, sir, that you think would be helpful to counsel out in the field? Well, I think you made a very good point for trial counsel. Uh, but but looking over to defense counsel out there um, – you need we need to keep in mind that they're they're keeping the Harrison precedent tight. The court is so if you if you're gonna if you're at a rehearing and your client had prior testimony, you really need to stick uh, to the rules they've said. Uh, your, your safe harbor is one. You need to make sure it's a legal action by the government. Uh, so the, the clear one is illegally obtained admissions or confessions. No throwing bravo rights. They ask for counsel, possibly Miranda issues. Something like that. You know, that that that's a safe harbor or uh, ineffective assistance of counsel. As we said, uh, essentially, CAF has implicitly agreed that ineffective assistance of counsel is a illegal act or it would meet that prong. Uh, but then also be ar- be prepared to argue, you know, how that testimony was caused by that illegal act. You're exactly right, sir. You want to find that clearest violation and hammer it home because the this whole area of the law really boils down to voluntariness. Was there an illegal act and did it override the voluntary nature of the waiver of self-incrimination? I think it's important to note for the practitioners that RCM 304F6 places the burden on the government to establish the admissibility of a confession or an admission. And 304F7 requires a finding by the military judge that the statement was voluntary. So again, this, this whole area of the law focuses on the voluntariness of one's confession or admission and whether or not it can be used at trial.
But wait, there's a little bit more, sir. Well, we kept thinking about the, the Harrison rule and illegal acts and talks about violating the constitutional rights of an accused. The Supreme Court used the fruits of the poisonous tree analogy when they came up with this rule in Harrison. So it seemed natural that we thought, well, what if the illegal act was an illegal search and seizure? That's yeah, an interesting point, right? Sir Harrison pulls this uh, fruit of the poisonous tree analogy. It talks about the taint associated with the different trials. And after the hours of research, we came across United States versus Simmons. It's an Army Court of Criminal Appeals case from 2003. It's an unpublished decision, but they distinguish the procedural due process violations of the Fifth Amendment. So Miranda 31 Bravo, obtaining those confessions or admissions illegally. The Supreme Court in Harrison pooling this Fourth Amendment language may be intended to one day include searches and seizures. The Army Court says it doesn't. It says that unreasonable searches under the Fourth Amendment are different from unwarned interrogations under the Fifth Amendment. Although it is frequently invoked in criminal trials, the Fourth Amendment is not a trial right. Its protection affords against governmental intrusion into one's homes and affairs and pertains to all citizens. And they drop a footnote to Harrison and say that the case before us is unlike those in which the in-court testimony is considered compelled when a confession or incriminating admission is obtained involuntarily. So it seems like even with illegal government action in the search and seizure process, that wouldn't necessarily extend to excluding in-court testimony under the Harrison rule. But wait, there's a little bit more, sir. Well, we kept thinking about the, the Harrison rule and illegal acts and talks about violating the constitutional rights of an accused. The Supreme Court used the fruits of the poisonous tree analogy when they came up with this rule in Harrison. So it seemed natural that we thought, well, what if the illegal act was an illegal search and seizure? That's yeah, an interesting point, right? Sir Harrison pulls this uh, fruit of the poisonous tree analogy. It talks about the taint associated with the different trials. And after the hours of research, we came across United States versus Simmons. It's an Army Court of Criminal Appeals case from 2003. It's an unpublished decision, but they distinguish the procedural due process violations of the Fifth Amendment. So Miranda 31 Bravo, obtaining those confessions or admissions illegally. The Supreme Court in Harrison pooling this Fourth Amendment language may be intended to one day include searches and seizures. The Army Court says it doesn't. It says that unreasonable searches under the Fourth Amendment are different from unwarned interrogations under the Fifth Amendment. Although it is frequently invoked in criminal trials, the Fourth Amendment is not a trial right. Its protection affords against governmental intrusion into one's homes and affairs and pertains to all citizens. And they drop a footnote to Harrison and say that the case before us is unlike those in which the in-court testimony is considered compelled when a confession or incriminating admission is obtained involuntarily. So it seems like even with illegal government action in the search and seizure process, that wouldn't necessarily extend to excluding in-court testimony under the Harrison rule. In this one unpublished case from 2003 
that's not sighted by anybody anywhere. It, it's not. You shepherdize this thing and there's nothing to see. So that doesn't seem to track with calf and, well, one, essentially, again, we talked about implicitly expanding the Harrison rule to include ineffective assistance of counsel. Their talk was about illegal actions. And if you can violate somebody's Fifth Amendment rights, against self-incrimination, and that counts. If you can violate somebody's Sixth Amendment rights to effective assistance of counsel, and that counts as legal action. One has to believe you can violate somebody's Fourth Amendment rights to illegal search and seizure, and that would count as legal action. Now, we haven't seen it. We don't have a case on it that, that, that supports it, but it tracks logically. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. If anything you heard sparked a thought, we'd love to connect with you. Your comments help us create better future content for the field or the fleet. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. The information can be found in the show notes for today's episode. The views expressed in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily the Judge Advocate General's Corps, the Department of the Army, or the Department of Defense. Thanks, counsel, for both sides. And the court will stand in recess until further order of the court.